Without further ado, it gives me uh, great pleasure to um, give a very, very brief introduction because I'm going to allow Bob to really uh, introduce more of himself. Um, Bob Seeley, who's going to talk to us about a, a particular area of concern, influence and psychological operations in war, um, both current operations and indeed probably thinking forward uh, over the next few years as well. A vitally important component of modern warfare that's so often neglected. Um, at the moment, Bob is uh, completing a PhD uh, at King's College. Um, he works closely with the Ministry of Defence, hence the nomenclature that I've got on his um, title today. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to you, Bob, to introduce yourself. Well, thank you very much indeed. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Bob Seeley, as, as Rob said. I, I'm just going to introduce myself so you understand um, uh, sort of where I come from, which sounds. Um, uh, well, it's probably helpful to explain my background slightly and why I um, ended up working for the MOD. Um, I was actually, my last job was working for um, MTV, of all people, about um, seven years ago, sort of launching TV stations around the world. And I worked as a spin doctor for a couple of Tory politicians, and then I was a parliamentary candidate. I spent a bit of time at Harvard and Brown, and I did 10 years as a reporter with the Times and the Washington Post, quite a long time ago now. And about five years ago, I, I got mobilised. I was a reservist, and I got mobilised out of the blue, having done a five-day course in um, sort of very basic sort of psychological operations, which in, sadly in a lot of conventional militaries really is quite basic. And on the back of that, I got mobilised to go to Iraq, and I was in Iraq for about eight months. Um, and then as soon as I came back, I got re-mobilised, happy to do so, uh, and I've, done, I've been out to Afghanistan about four times and I did two months uh, doing media ops tour and then four months doing influence planning and spent some time in a place called Nadi Ali which is not a very nice area of um, central uh, Helmand where it's been fairly active and helping to plan operations there and I've done two other short visits and I've, I've worked an exercise and I've been out with the army on operations in, in various other parts of the world in the Med a little bit and down in the Falklands so that's my background um, so it's a sort of mix of um, sort of civi uh, civilian media uh, ops and all that sort of good stuff and then five years in the military I am technically a soldier I don't think anyone who's a proper soldier sees me as being one but I do have an army number um, and I get posted into either uh, on operations or with various regiments and units and I help advise them not just on psyops and influence but more broadly on, on what the nature of insurgency warfare in, in this age looks like. And there are a number of points I'm going to try to make, and probably the most important one is that really insurgency, okay, it is warfare, but it isn't. It's violent politics, and one of the, the huge problems in the last hundred years is that we've sent soldiers to do effectively a political campaign, a political campaign where you need aeroplanes and bombs and bullets and all that sort of good stuff. But really... Um, Insurgency, non-conventional warfare, is a branch of politics almost more than it is of of, uh, of violence and warfare. Um, it's going to be this presentation slightly unstructured. I slightly apologise. Rob said, "Don't apologise." I'm slightly because I want to do a perfect presentation with tongue because I'm doing PhD students. I can quote lots of academic <coughs> to make it look like I've done the reading and all that. Um, uh, I was actually going to quote myself as well, which I'm quite looking forward to. Um, uh, but, but I, I've but I've got a bit of a mishmash, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about myself. I'll just tick that box there. And then I'm going to say, what is influence? So if anyone's got to go in about five minutes, I will answer that in about a minute's time. And then I'm going to 
do a little bit of background historically about hearts and minds within warfare and, and roughly where I think it fits in. And then I'm going to make a bunch of points for about 10 minutes. The most important one is that, that um, insurgency is, is, is political warfare. And then I'm going to come and look slightly at doctrine. And I know it's very boring, and I find it boring, but my supervisor host told me off and said, no, you must do the doctrine. It's really important. So I don't know if Ken is here. Um, but I, will, I am going to talk a little bit about the doctrine and how influence as an idea has evolved and if it's how vague it is and how precise and how useful it is and then come on to make some more general points about the nature of warfare and what the use of influence tells us about how warfare is going to evolve in the 21st century and, and what sort of things we can expect and that's specifically looking at ideas like smart power which is uh, Joseph Nye's ideas you know, he's using the power of soft power uh, and how that combines with hard power and using smart power and all that sort of thing so it's going to be slightly unstructured I've got a bunch of um, uh, as you can see powerpoints and there's one specific example of, of a campaign we did in Basra but if I forget to do it in the formal bit of the talk hopefully somebody will prompt me and I'll just run through that in five minutes to give you an idea there and there's a little bit of doctrine as well that I want to show you a little bit about intelligence work. And the reason it's up like this so I can remember all the stuff that I've got there so I can pull it up um, as and when. Right, what's influence? Very good question. And one of the slight problems is that the army hasn't really got its head around what influence is. Um, it has an idea, but it sort of changes every six months. About ten years ago, the word influence crept into army doctrine as a subset of information ops. And information ops was a fair old chunk of some soft effect which was very much part of something called J3 support. Now for those of you with a military background you'll know that J3 is the hard pointy end of the military, it's the immediate operations be it that day or certainly in the next couple of days. For regular soldiers J3 is operations within the next 48 hours, J5 is operations within the next week or two. In, in the more rarefied worlds of SF it, the, the, the dates sort of change slightly but basically J3, J5, this is the act, you know, these are soldiers going out doing stuff on the ground. And Info Ops was very much part of J3 Ops support. So we were supporting doing press releases or information operations on the back of kinetic, that is violent physical military operations. Um, it has then morphed to become a much greater thing. About five years later, it evolved into being the sum of all non-kinetic effect. If anyone wants to stick up their hand and say, I don't understand what you're talking about, please do so as I talk, because it's much better than asking me at the end. All non-kinetic effect, military activity is divided into two. Kinetic effect, things that go bang, and non-kinetic effect, which is things that don't go bang. So influence became the sum of all non-kinetic effect, that is, you know, hearts and minds operations, key leadership engagement, interaction with villagers, interaction with prime ministers, media ops um, externally to Britain, indigenous information ops to local people. So that became influence. It's since morphed even further into being the overarching aim in a lot of what the UK does strategically. So if you look at some of the manuals we produce, some of the some works like Future Character of Conflict, which goes by the charming acronym FCOC, um, uh, if you look at all those sorts of things, Influence is now the name of the game, how to get people to do what you want, either by posturing, by sticking an aircraft carrier that we may or may not have outside somebody's port, or by economic power, or by military power, or even using DFID and other organisations uh, when they can be bothered to, to, um, to do stuff. So that, in, in the sum of it, is what influence is. It started off as a bit of info ops, 
as an element of it, it morphed into all non-kinetic effect, all the supporting effect that the military needs. And because of the nature of insurgency and counterinsurgency that we've been doing in the past 10 years, it's become almost the greatest sum of everything, everything that the military does. And I think there's a decent slide here. Uh, if you look at this military influence, the levers, um, ignore the writing on, the, on, on there and this bit, this is the military contribution to stabilization. This is out of a publication, uh, JDP 340. I think it has come out about two, three years ago. And you've got all the activities that we do. The maneuver is, is getting the army to focus on the enemy's weak point to defeat him. That may be a raid on you know, uh, uh, a compound in, in, in a village in northern Afghanistan. It, it may be uh, a divisional uh, level operation. So this is the fighting end. These are uh, infrastructure projects, soft effects. This is fires, physical destruction, where you're putting your, your kinetic operations. Uh, and this is the information activities that support it. And everything is to win over your target audience, be it prime minister, be it a village, be it a, a national population. And that is now where influences come. So it started out as an acorn, and it's become this oak. And it's, as many people point out, a very vague sort of oak, because people still aren't quite sure what it means. And in effect, influence in practical terms is A, a thing that generals waffle about, without understanding quite what it is. B, it's a thing that colonels and majors need as part of their support to their kinetic, kinetic operations. If you're a slightly old-fashioned commander, you'll get influence to support the kinetic operation that you do clearing a compound or clearing a village. If you're a slightly more enlightened commander, I would add, you start off as Mosterak, a very important operation that I'll discuss a bit later, a couple of years ago in Afghanistan did, you'll start off by saying, what is my end result? My end result is no Taliban and infrastructure projects going ahead. That is my political aim operationally in my patch of Nadi Ali, uh, North or South or Sangin or wherever, how do I use my kinetic and non-kinetic to combine to make that happen? That should be the thinking. So influence is two things. At the tactical operational level, it's, it's um, support to kinetic or kinetic is supporting it to achieve your political objectives and at the Rockley level it's what some general with a very small hand and a very very large hand and a very small map will say I want to have influence over here and influence over there. So anyway, for those of you who've got to dash, that is influence and that I'm, what I'm going to be talking about for the next 20 minutes or so and I will move on because obviously I don't want to start waffling. Um, a little bit about history of hearts and minds in warfare. I think it's very important to... Um, what is influence in, in the history of warfare? It's about the human and the political within warfare. Uh, it's Judas Maccabees. It could be the Zealots. If you think about it, I always—I mean, one of the fascinating ideas I, I, I've had recently, and I'm sure it's not mine because I've heard it on the radio, uh, was, was when uh, an academic was talking about Jesus' role as a zealot. Um, and I was thinking, actually, everything that he did leading up, and I'm not questioning, I'm not questioning the, 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 the whys and wherefores of Christianity, but just seeing Jesus as a historical figure, he was a zealot. His activity in Jerusalem leading up to his, um, uh, to his crucifixion arguably was a form of propaganda of the deed. In its effect, it was no different to what Che Guevara was trying to do or the IRA was trying to do. These were propaganda of the deed. These were acts designed to fulfill a propaganda purpose, whether it's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey or whether it's blowing up a barracks in Londonderry. Uh, some people may have an issue with that, but I think it's useful to, uh, to, to, to see these things, to see conflict in the broad and political role. 
historically, uh, hearts and minds in warfare, it has encompassed irregular troops in the 18th century. You could argue that people like Rogers Rangers in Canada, the Brits fighting the French in Canada and North America in the middle of the 18th century, was a form of irregular, almost a form of SF type of ops. Uh, and the Rangers now, the US Rangers, they take their name uh, from Rogers Rangers initially, which is his British force in the mid 18th century. Um, there's a link to uh, certainly Algeria and the Caucasus maybe in the middle of the last century in terms of types of tactics used certainly by the insurgents, people fighting against European domination uh, and again the Boers as well who were very interesting at the turn of the 19th and 20th century who I think were the first group of people to fight in a way that was inconvenient and very counterproductive for the Western imperial forces. The Boers arguably were the first native troops, and I use native in question marks, that actually played to their strengths uh, and not to their weaknesses. Um, since then, um, T.E. Lawrence, a genius, who I'm going to quote from a little bit later, who I think had a great deal to say about psychological battle spaces in warfare in his book, and I recommend it to everyone, it's an amazing read, and you can do it in a couple of hours, is Evolution of a Revolt, an astonishingly brilliant work, which resonates now. And if you want to understand warfare now, read uh, T. Lawrence's Evolution of a Revolt, because in it, he, and I'll come to the relevant uh, quotes when I can find them in, in, in my work here. In it, he was sort of arguing about the, uh, he had to prepare his own mindsmen for battle, and he had to understand the enemy's mindset and the enemy supporters' mindset and our supporters' mindset in the Middle East, in Europe and beyond. So he understood the notion that a battle space is not simply what the military now call the JOA, the operating area, but it can encompass the globe. And I think that was amazingly creative, considering that he was fighting and leading his, his leader, advisor, um, uh, the king, uh, during a time when uh, the First World War, when you had commanders whose sole aim whose sole purpose was to march men towards the enemy to try to kill as many of them as possible. And Lawrence turned that on its head and said, actually, what I'm going to do is not have battle. I will avoid battle, and I will defeat my enemy by tying them down in Medina and all along the railway from Medina to Asia Minor. And I will defeat my enemy by avoiding battle. And he did so, and he tied down something like 300,000 Turkish troops at a fraction of the cost of Allenby's army. So and that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm veering slightly into creative warfare, because I think one of the points that I'm um, unashamedly trying to do is use influence, that is, hearts and minds operations, and understanding of how you win over populations uh, to understand the nature of non-conventional and creative warfare. So I should have said that a little bit earlier. Since then, since T. Lawrence, um, SOE, and the Brits have done a lot of insurgency as well as counterinsurgency. So you've had the political warfare executive in the last, in the Second World War. You had the special operations executive in the in, in the last war as well. Um, you could argue that the Nazis lost the civilizational battle because they had no hearts and minds strategy in Ukraine. I mean, it is one of the great what ifs in history. If they'd got, if the Nazis, if the Germans had got uh, a Ukrainian army, which was well within their grasp, if they wanted to, of two to three million men. Would the Russians ever have stood a chance of getting any of European Russia back? I'd argue almost certainly not. But the, the, the Germans were phenomenally good soldiers, but unlike the Brits, they missed the bigger picture, they missed the political objective. And actually, if Hitler had, I say, wanted to win the last war, clearly he did. Um, uh, but you know, if manpower had been the, op the issue for the Germans in the last war, then getting a Ukrainian army of five million using hearts and minds, appealing to the Ukrainians, giving them national identity, giving them the, po the political aims that they strove for, I think he probably would have been um, um, unstoppable, and I'm very glad that he didn't do that clearly. Um, <laughs> 
Post-war counterinsurgency, Galula, Kitts and Thompson, these people are all worth reading again, to those of you who don't know them. David Galula was a Frenchman, served in Vietnam, um, and then went and lived in the States. Uh, Sir Frank Kitson, great man. He talked about the continuum between kinetic operations and non-kinetic operations, the unity of effect. And that's one of the things that the Britain and America and all these conventional um, armies are struggling with now, the idea of unity of effect. How do you get the Foreign Office, DFID, the MOD, regular soldiery, TA? Do you get them combined in, in an operating area to create the effect to create the influence effect that you finally want. Um, since then, I'd argue that uh, and since the 1970s, I think we've lost our way. We've become addicted to high-tech war. We've followed the Americans. The Americans are brilliant in many ways, but they've got their flaws. Uh, we've followed the Americans down this high-tech route. We abandoned the human, the understanding of the human. And very importantly, for people like uh, Andrew McKinley, who wrote his book, uh, The Insurgent Archipelago, he would argue that the reason why the Brits did counterinsurgency so well in the post-war period is not because our army was particularly good, although I think it was very competent, uh, and the use of the idea of minimum force was something that was central to the British Army operations, that you don't kill more people than you have to, you don't, create, you don't engage in brutality, there are question marks to what extent we believed that and actually practiced it, but we certainly argued it. McKinley said actually the thing was we had political officers. You had some bloke who lived with the Mau Mau for 40 years or 20 years and who was a political officer and knew his stuff. You had somebody in the Afghan hills. You had somebody in the Peshawar Valley who knew the natives, who knew that the fundamental problem was a breakdown of politics and not simply an, or not, not simply an outbreak of fighting. Because fighting in human societies generally comes when you've had a collapse of a political settlement of some kind or when you've had some crisis. And so McKinley argued the reason we did counterinsurgency so well is because we understood the nuances, the people, the villages, the ethnic identity, the cultural nuances, and all these good things. And a, let me show you a quick slide on that here. That I found, it's a bit of a, uh, as I apologise, it's a little bit messy. Um, if I can find it, where is it? There's a, a great bit of, where is it? Yeah, sort of cultural stuff here. Um, this is a just a present a um, just a product. This is a, a guy in, in Iraq. We can't do this nowadays. If if we actually, this is a guy in in, in uh, an Iraqi Shia who was trying to advise the Americans and said, look, and the Brits as well. He said, look, you come here to talk about democracy. Uh, we've we've had that with Saddam, and you know we don't believe a word of it. Uh, and actually, we are a religious nation, and our culture is our religion in the same way, in, in a way that it hasn't been in a place like Britain for 100, 150 years. Um, and if you want to win over the Shia, this is what you should say, that you're the followers of Jesus, and you're the sons of Ibrahim, like all Muslims. We've come to the Holy Land because Lucifer's here, and we're going to kill Lucifer. Now, if I had said that to my general officer commanding in Iraq, I would have been sent back home probably in a straitjacket and with a very useful diagnosis of being mentally ill because then wonderful because you just extend your service for as long as your illness lasts. So it would have been great because uh, the army could have paid me to write my PhD and I wouldn't actually have to work now because I'd be mentally ill. Uh, I'd also be correct because that's what we should have said. And now, even now, in Afghanistan until about a year ago, we had 17 themes and messages. And if I'd pinned down the, the, the brigadier in the task force helmet and said, give me five of them, he'd probably remember one, and that's about it. The Taliban, we know, Islam, 
foreigners out. You know, we've now got two messages, but it's taken six years. And I think one of the lessons that we've learned, I apologise, I'm running slightly behind time, I'm trying to pull off. One of the lessons that we've learned is that actually you have to get your narrative right and you have to learn very quickly. And one of the problems that a very bureaucratic armed force that we've had, um, both the US and the Brits and the French and other people, is that we've learned our lessons very slowly and it's taken us years to get the doctrine right. And the reason you have an insurgency is because of a political breakdown in the first place. And what we did, unfortunately, in Afghanistan is that we helped to create that more, um, not because we were bad soldiers, but because going into Helmand under strength, we created a hornet's nest when all the hatred and all the divisions could be focused on a very small number of British troops who then had to fight like cats and dogs to stop their post being overrun and slaughtered a la Russians up in Kajaki when they were all skinned, or the Brits in Jalalabad uh, when they were pretty much all skinned as well. Um, after that, we had to call in air power to survive, which massively infuriated the locals, because people who were sitting on the fence said, right, well, you've trashed my village square. Uh, what on earth do you think you're doing? You're killing my kids, etc. There's collateral damage. So, um, yeah, listen, then. Anyway, sorry, back to this. I'm offering slightly. This is a product that we did in Iraq. We were to one of the rules, and I think another, another point of learning that I've got um, is that in religious countries, you have to talk about God, and we're not allowed to according to the rules because God is, is a bit touchy, so we don't go near him. So we left the most important idea to the enemy, to the Jai Shah Mahdi, uh, to the army of, of, of the Mahdi, which was run uh, by Muqtada al-Assad, or Muqtada al-Assad was an Easter figurehead. We got around it slightly because we were Allah Akbar in a lot of what we did, and that's the closest we could come to religion. But we're having a nice big Allah Akbar there, and sort of almost slipping it under the cover because it was... In there, it, it was in the Iraqi police and Iraqi army literature. By getting the Allah Akbar in, we could at least get a reference to religion in there, so we didn't have to vacate that absolutely critical cultural space. Uh, and there it is, there. Right. Um, I'm going to come along to a few points I'm going to make, and I'm going to get through these quickly. I always actually over overwrite and think that I'm going to run out of time. Uh, sorry, I haven't got enough to say, but I always have too much to say. That's the problem. Uh, right. Points that I'm trying to make. Coin is a violent political campaign, we've done that. Culture is very difficult to understand and getting it right is absolutely critical and we don't have the cultural relationships to a lot of societies that we used to have because we don't have the people living in them and when we do like the Foreign Office, they are not the adventurous types anymore and the Foreign Office, unfortunately, is not the Foreign Office that it was in the days of empire, which is a shame. Um, this is a bit of a sort of Hegelian check, the whole sort of hearts and minds return to the understanding of the human and the political in warfare. It's all a little bit of a return, or it's a little bit of a reality check on the revolution of military affairs, which I know uh, Ulrich and others are, are studying, where the RMA was all about technology. This is all about human beings. Now, clearly, there is a synthesis of the two. Use of drones, use of technology to listen, to understand, so you can act on the human. So you can get the intelligence that allows you to kill individuals or capture individuals rather than kill the wrong people and suffer collateral damage. So there's a balance between high-tech and the human that we haven't had in warfare. But the RMA and the whole sort of we love cruise missiles because we can park one wherever we want is great in conventional war. But the problem is, as Van Clausewitz and other people admit, that and Clausewitz wrote endlessly about conventional war. Actually... He talked a lot about partisan warfare when, the, when Napoleon and the French came through Prussia. And he was absolutely up for doing an SOE-style special operations executive insurgency warfare out of Vietnam, out of China, all this good stuff. 
thing is, on war, is all about conventional war, and I'd argue that he actually wrote about the wrong thing. He should have wrote about the Spanish, about the Peninsula War, which is still very much with us. And the idea being a Peninsula War was Wellington that took a small, very well-trained, regular force, and he bulked it out with masses of really angry Spaniards who wanted to kill the French. And that actually is a model for warfare in our age, for this century, maybe for future centuries. But the conventional warfare that Van Kuyzen actually studied, you know, apart from the fact that it's entirely historic, even if you take conventional warfare and say, right, well, let's take that model and bring it forward now, how often do we fight conventional war? 10, 15 years for every century. How often do we fight chaos warfare, political warfare, non-conventional warfare? probably most years of every century. Certainly that's the rule of the last hundred years, even with the cataclysmic industrial wars that we've had, and probably which are unlikely to happen again, because even if you take the idea of a naval war in, in, in the Pacific between China and the US, which may be the most likely form of significant conventional war, or perhaps between, I don't know, India and Pakistan again, but then I think they're so well matched now, um, you know, it's difficult to see these conventional wars lasting any length of time. But chaos wars, political wars, non-conventional wars, insurgency wars, these are going to be with us for years and decades to come. Right. Limited warfare is all about sending messages, which is why your narrative is so important in warfare, and which is why uh, your information operations are important, and not just as a subset, but as an encompassing aim. What is our political aim in this village, on this road, in this city, in this country, you know, in this region, at whatever level? Um, and so it is about sending messages. And everything, everything that we do uh, is, uh, is a message. And we forget that at our peril. And I think we have forgotten that in a lot of the soldiering that we've done in the last 10 years. Um, there is a fluidity in insurgency warfare between information and violence because they overlap. If you're planning a resistance, you're teaching people to sabotage tanks, you're teaching people to sabotage broadcast systems, which nowadays you know, has a violent effect because it helps to overthrow a regime. In the same way that you're doing violent action, in the same way that you're doing information activities that lead to violent action, by gearing people up to fight, by advising them how to fight, like the Palestinians did in the first intifada. The first intifada, if you remember, was kids, spontaneous uprising, slingshots, uh, very little in the way of AKs or sort of, you know, hooded thugs and all that sort of stuff. So keeping the Intifada going, the information campaign was about geeing up the soldiers, was about, sorry, geeing up the young Palestinians, but also advising them on how to fight, advising them on tactics against the Israelis. Um, so in the same way that that information campaign has a violent outlet, so by having the propaganda, the deed bit, an explosion bit, a suicide bomber, bit of violent action, you're using that violent action as a statement as well. So there's an overlap between information warfare and violent warfare. They feed off each other and they have to be seen as things that are fundamentally intertwined. And I think, again, we are learning that. Hearts and minds in practical terms is much more complex nowadays. Undoubtedly true. I mean, some nut with a bomb uh, with a bunch of uh, ammonium nitrate, fertilizer, a computer, a mobile phone, you can pretty much set yourself up as a global terrorist group. You may not have much success, but it is possible, and arguably that is what elements of Al-Qaeda have done, and Al-Qaeda is absolutely focused, as we know. They say themselves that our battle is 90% in the media, and it's 10% in, 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 in acts of violence. For conventional war, um, conventional forces like our own tend to do the opposite, which isn't great. Um, however, Despite the fact that hearts and minds are much more complex nowadays, we have 
succeeded less than we should have or failed more than we should have, depending on what your slant is, in part because we have forgotten most of the lessons that we originally learned. Uh, and that, for me, has been the really painful thing about watching uh, our own armed forces. And when I've been serving with them, my job has very thankfully allowed me to have a little bit of, not oversight, but to nose around the elements of, of your divisional headquarters or to get out on the ground with troops. From a company level down, I think the Brits and probably the Americans, I think they do a fantastically good job because they have to interact with locals. They are forced to take hearts and minds seriously. They're forced to engage. They're forced to pick up intelligence and information and then analyze that. But above that level, there has been a, a corporate and institution, an institutional forgetting of, of what we have been um, um, about. Right, I'm going to stop there because I'm just going to go through, if anyone is interested in this, just the having a quick look at doctrine for those of you who are interested. And I know, I'm sort of, I know this is a bit of the sort of nuts and bolts bread and butter piece, but I hope it's going to be quite useful. And then I'll go into some general points, provided I can find the bit of paper that has it, um, looking at uh, some of the research that may be of interest to you, but also then looking a little bit just as the future and what the future may hold in terms of warfare, and that'll be about another 10, ten minutes or so, and then maybe uh, questions, because I think I'm probably talking a little bit too much. Right, doctrine. 2002, first influence uh, terminology of influence in, um, in uh, uh, JWP 380 Information Ops, that's 2002. Then there's a lot of other references to influence and influence operations within military effects approach to warfare. Uh, so JD, uh, JDN 105, JDN 405, looked at the comprehensive approach, and I'm just going to throw up a couple of slides on that now to, to give you some idea of the confusion. When we think about the military, we always think the military very swept up in what they're doing. And if the military says something very smart, or if the military says something, there's normally a very good reason because they're very smart people. Um, I was talking to Professor Strawn about this, and actually one of the things that he said was that really wasn't the case. So if you look at the comprehensive approach here, you'll see what a sort of an intellectual mess it is, and I'm sorry to be negative. I know there's strong points about it, and I'm not disagreeing with everything. <coughs> um, the comprehensive approach is big joint effects attitude. So you've got, in the second bubble, you've got the UK approach to campaign. You've got capability, which is to kit the people. You've got understanding, and you've got will. Now, clearly, you need desire to do something. That's absolutely true. But understanding, in terms of J2, and capability are pretty much the same thing I'd argue. So why is intelligence gathering different from capability? It's absolutely not. So uh, I think that is uh, you know, a fundamental flaw there. So if you take out that, you end up with capability and will. And if you look at joint action, fires, blowing things up, it's called the propaganda of the deed. You know, that is part of influence. That's part of the psychological approach. That's part of the psychological understanding. You know, maneuver is allegedly now part of influence, and influence is, fits into maneuver anyway, according to, according to the doctrine writing. But I don't understand the difference between fires and influence, because influence surely is an outcome of maneuver, getting your men in the right place at the right time to kill the enemy or capture the enemy. Uh, and it's also an outcome of fires putting bombs down or dropping leaflets on a specific area. So again, there is a lack of sort of intellectual rigor and intellectual credibility there. And again, I value the kinetic and non-kinetic. Then moving further down, OPSEC coordinating ops. Well, OPSEC has got nothing to do with influence, and uh, media ops tend to be terrible gossips anyway. Um, so that's a bit of a... Uh, uh, coordinating ops again, media, no. Coordinating ops there is influence, because influence is a coordinating op for all non-kinetic effect. 
So why is media there when media is a subset of something that should be higher up the chain? Likewise, information ops and civic stabilization is one of the great themes which should be much higher. So again, there's a lack of credibility there, sort of a lack of intellectual rigor uh, in, in all those sort of areas. And then moving down to the tools and techniques, well, physical destruction, I'm not sure it's a tool and technique. And again, I think that is the wrong place. Special capability, electronic warfare has got nothing to do with key leadership engagement, uh, which is related to it. Psyops actually infuses everything that we're talking about, all the different bubbles here completely. Um, what was that? Counter command, again, wrong place. Uh, it's not a tactical, it's, it's much more of an operational issue. Um, so if you're going to look at information operations, probably what you want to do is divide up information into various different elements and aspects that you can understand better. So you have direct information, which is information operations, KLE, stuff that I control, stuff that I can win you over directly. It's a meeting with you, or it's dropping a leaflet on your house, or it's sending you a direct message on radio. I control it, so I know what I'm going to say to you. I may get the message wrong if I don't do my cultural appreciation correctly, but at least I have a good idea. Indirect information is through the media. And again, it's one of our big failings in Afghanistan that a lot of the people who've worked with the indigenous media have sadly been of really poor quality, and it's a bit of a dross job to do. And in fact, the, the quality of work has been extremely poor. Sorry, not too many. Um, so, so we've got direct information, indirect information, which is via the media. So you're a journalist, I'm trying to influence you, so I go through you to hit that person. That is direct and indirect information. We've got cyber information, including various special capabilities that the army get very excited about, electronic warfare, all that good stuff. And then we have presence information. What do I look like on the ground? It amazingly, actually, it disappointed me that even in the dying days in Telic 12 and 13, and Telic was the operational name given to Afghanistan, to uh, Iraq, we went out with, uh, with, with hard hats on, very much tooled up for violence, when the war, the insurgency, had actually finished about six months earlier. And when I was doing the training for Telic 13, everyone came through a US air base down in Kuwait, and we were there for a couple of weeks, and I was doing the PSYOPs bit. Uh, and I was just talking to people, and none of them, uh, the British soldiers coming through, and they had not had any training in sort of in population engagement. Their training was still in hard kinetic warfare. And that was at the end, that was the dying end, the last year of the campaign, where really we had moved on. And I was again surprised and a touch disappointed uh, that we got that so badly wrong. So your presence, whether you're in berets or helmets, whether you're prodding somebody with a weapon, not that I'd advise that, I don't think it's legal to do anyway, um, all that sort of good stuff says a lot about you and your posture. So it's like in Afghanistan in Helmand back in 2006, are we relying on the Air Force because we're about to be overrun? That sends messages to locals, A, we're undermanned, we haven't got the force ratios, and we're blowing up everything in sight because we haven't come here with the correct preparation. It's not good. Uh, disinformation, deception, great stuff, very important. Um, strategic level, FCO, targeting and information operations, a slightly dysfunctional organisation with the MOD, um, and you've got stuff like Number 10 Downing Street, etc., which controls the strategic level. And above that, you have the carrot and stick of physical destruction, blowing things up, uh, and civic stabilisation, winning people over. And that, again, sort of combines under your influence. So that just gives you a little bit of an idea about, I think, a sort of certain intellectual dysfunctionality that we've had in the MOD and in wider defence circles, and I think the Americans have slightly the same problem as well with that. Um, right, what else just about doctrine? Um, what else? JDP 300 campaigning, very important. I think that shows the quote in, in the document from Telic 10 from Major General... Um, 
bins. We conduct all operations in order to influence people and events to bring about change, whether by a 155mm artillery shell or by hosting visits. And I think by the time that you had JDP 300, which came in the last couple of years, in 2009, um, you had that break and that you had the idea that influence was everything and that influence was critical. Um, since then, Future Character of War, uh, very influenced, orientated, the Land Influence Handbook and the Insurgent Tactics Handbook. Again, recent publications that have come out in the last two years, all of which talk about the totality of what you're trying to do and seeing it in terms of kinetic uh, and non-kinetic uh, events. Um, now, Rob, I'm, it's now 22, I'm talking about 35 minutes. Shall I stop there and then we can have questions? Because that, that's. Sort of, I was just talking about future of where we're seeing the future of warfare. Um, and I'd argue that, I mean, social media's got a huge impact. We don't even know the impact yet, and we're still looking at that. I think there's a lot of very good thinking, a lot of it being done by the US Marine Corps. Uh, and I'm engaged with um, somebody over there working on this, and they're looking at. Freedom of the concept of freedom of manoeuvre across the digital, across the real and unreal space. Unreal meaning you know, digital, cyberspace, etc. And, and US Marine Corps, an organisation like that, has, has a, has, is used to the idea of having freedom of manoeuvre on land, on sea, on air, and all these places. But the concept of freedom of manoeuvre in the digital space, in cyberspace, I think is a very important progression. And I think it shows a really sort of revolutionary thinking that wherever they go, whether it's in a virtual world or the non-virtual world, they have to control, they have to understand and be able to control that space. So that gives you an idea of the sort of thinking. I think when it comes to the ideas around smart power, we're combining soft power, power of MTV, with hard power, the power of you know, USS uh, Nimitz. And it's about how to combine the two, and we're not very good at doing so. And I think Joseph Nye has some very interesting ideas to say about that, although I don't think he's very good at understanding the role of soft power within the military. Um, I think joint effect is something that we're still very much working on. Joint effect is the idea of combining government departments to work together. Many of you will think, well, that isn't that what we pay our taxes for. You'll be right, but I don't think it happens. Uh, and I think there's a lot of work that's going to be done on that in the next 10 years. Uh, and I think finally, I think there are huge significant legal implications about modern warfare as well that we haven't got our heads around because it is currently very much easier to kill somebody than to persuade them or dissuade. Um, Somali pirates, you can dissuade, but if you come too near them and you capture them, they can ask for asylum. We can't drop them off anywhere. We can't put them in Somalia because there is no legal system and they will have a field day in our courts. So actually it's easier to kill somebody. And arguably, is that moral? So legalistic, we're coming to the point now where legal war is actually becoming legalistic war, which is arguably not moral or ethical. And I think there is that division, interestingly, uh, between what is legal and what is ethical. And I think that is a growing problem. And I'll probably leave it, leave it at that. Right, I mean, you've given this sort of a uh, tour de raison. Uh, it's very unstructured, I apologise. But, no, I should just be fair to Bob. I mean, you know, I, I asked him to be provocative, you know, to throw things out. It does remind me of the fact...